that great? Oh, man, it's always the pastor's kids that do stuff, right? Throw the jingle bells. Oh, man. So we've been in this series called This Changes Everything. And this Christmas Eve, we're talking about how Jesus, this, the birth of Christ, changes everything in our lives. And so we want to invite you out to that. Uh, That is at uh, 6 o'clock. It goes for one hour. Um, I'm really excited about that service. We've got some great stuff in your bulletins. You'll find one of these. It's a postcard. You could throw a stamp on it. It'll go in the mail. Maybe you've got a neighbor, a friend, or some, somebody who you want to invite to that. It's a great tool for that. We've been inviting. We, um, last, yesterday, we had a great time with Love, Inc., and um, we, it was a Bless a Child toy event. It was right here. A lot of families uh, got to see Santa. Kind of, We had a praying Santa, so Santa got to pray with them, which was really cool. And uh, we fed them breakfast and just toys for families who might not otherwise be able to have that kind of thing. And so it was really cool. And thank you for all of you who either helped wrap presents last week for that or uh, who who came to that. So thank you so much. But we've been in this series called This Changes Everything. And that's what Christmas is. It it, it changes everything. It was a moment in time in history that, that changed the rest of the world. I mean, you think about even our calendar revolves around Christmas, around Jesus's coming. Everything revolves around that. And so as we look through this series so far, we looked at some of Jesus's family history. We looked at some of Jesus's background. We saw that there were some unsavory people in his background. We've been preaching through the genealogy of Jesus and and we saw the drama that comes with that. There's some really difficult people there. So if you've got difficult people in your family, don't worry because so did Jesus. You're in good company. But as we get into this today, we want to finish up with Matthew chapter 1 and look a little bit this morning at the story of Joseph, the, the father of Jesus, and a little bit more in depth about all that happened surrounding the birth of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 1, if you have a Bible, if you want a Bible, you don't have one, just raise your hand, our ushers will bring you one, it's yours to keep, uh, you could take that home with you. So packed into this genealogy is so much stuff, and we're finishing off with that today, and finishing off chapter 1. Matthew... 1 verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. That's the end of the the genealogy. Thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. We went over that last week, so if you're interested, look back last week to uh, our sermons page on why that's important. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. 
but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave and he gave him the name Jesus. A lot of details in that. And I want to talk a little bit about this because when you begin to unpack this little bit of scripture, so much begins to jump out at us. So when we look back at verse 16 here, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then it talks about how they were pledged to be married and Joseph found her to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And then he was going to divorce her because uh, she, basically he thought she had broken the law, Jewish law, which was in that time, marriage is a bind, or betrothal or engagement period. It's a binding legal time for them. So it's just as if you're legally married. There's three stages in a Jewish marriage, especially at this time. One of them is the betrothal time, which they were in. It's as if they were legally married, but Joseph would have been at home at his father's house preparing a place for Mary to come live with him. Because that's what you did in the first century. If you were a first century Jew, you said, let me go back to my father's house. Build, a ho- build an extra room for us to raise our family into. Some of you know John 14, where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. All marriage language in the Bible, when Jesus talks about going back to his father, to, in, in preparation of bringing his bride, the church, home. All marriage language. I love this, right in, in verse um, 19 here. It talks about Mary being pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but if Desiree and I were engaged, you know, 10 years ago when we were engaged, and she came to me and said, I'm pregnant, and it was the Holy Spirit, I'd be like, yeah, right. I'm out of here, you know. Because <laughs> I know it wasn't me. You know, that, that's, that's a tough thing to hear. And one of the things that it says is that Joseph loved the law. So he would have had to do what the law said. And what the law said is, in this time, if you're betrothed to somebody and they become pregnant by another person, then you're to take them and that person and stone them publicly, right? So it said he loved the law. He followed the law. And then I love this little, this two little words right here. And then it says, because Joseph was, uh, Joseph, I'm sorry, because Joseph her husband was faithful to the law. And then it says this, and yet, and yet, did not want to expose her publicly uh, disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph had this compassion, even though he knew what was right and wrong, he had this compassion and didn't want to see her harmed. He didn't want her to be exposed publicly. He wanted her to be taken care of and this child to be taken care of. Because if he didn't do that, if he exposed her publicly, she would have not had a life. She would have been outcast. I love that it says, and yet. Do you think that God chose Joseph for a reason? Maybe of his character for grace. I love that. Because Joseph has this grace about him. That even though there's the midst of this giant scandal, and he wants to be faithful to the law, and, and, and there is a way for him to be faithful to the law and not hurt Mary. So he's just going to divorce her quietly because he didn't want to expose her. I think maybe God chose Joseph for a reason, maybe because of his compassion, maybe because of his grace and mercy that he was showing at the time. It's the character of Joseph that showed up that God said, this is the guy who I want teaching my son. 
this is the guy. So here there's something really interesting, too, that we don't often read into the Christmas story. In fact, I was having breakfast with somebody this week, and I told them a little bit about what I was preaching on there. Like, I've never even heard that, and I've been in the church my whole life. But this is essentially what happens. Last week, we made a big, huge deal about how Jesus comes from the line of David and how it's so important it fulfills all his prophecy, that he's actually a king, he's setting up a new kingdom, and he's called a king many, many, many times in the Gospels and all this stuff, and how it's so important that he comes from the line of David. And yet, the only way that he comes from the line of David is through Joseph. But Joseph was not his biological father, right? Joseph wasn't his. I mean, Jesus wasn't Joseph's. He was the father of the Holy Spirit and Mary. So how, how in the world did he get Joseph's family line? Because the only way he gets to be the son of David is through Joseph. Well, God tells him, I want you to name him Jesus. And that phrase, name him, we don't even think much about it today because we name our kids and it's, it's, it's just a nominal thing. It's something you do. You name your children, you buy books on names, all that stuff. You just name your kids. He said, name him Yeshua, which I'm using the Hebrew version because it means our God saves. Name him. And the reason why it is so important that he named him is because in the first century world, when you name your child, you take legal responsibility for your child. Many people don't realize this, but in the first century world, there was all these unwanted children where fathers would look at them and they would have some defect or something wrong with them and they would refuse to name them and they would become slaves or they would be left to die as babies. They were not legally humans because the father didn't give them a name. So when God, when the angel of God shows up to Joseph and says, give him a name, he's not just saying, give him a name and it's just some nominal thing. He's saying, take legal responsibility for this boy. Take him on as your own. Adopt him into your family. Because that's what happened. When Joseph gave Jesus the name Yeshua, when he called him Jesus, when he gave him the name on that eighth day, he took legal responsibility and adopted him into his family line. So now he is the son of David. I love how God does this with adoption. Not just because I'm a huge advocate for adoption and and we're working on the whole um, Jacob adoption. We've got people adopting in our church and all that. Not, not just because of that. But I love it because there's this really amazing quote from C.S. Lewis. And many of you know I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. I quote him all the time in sermons. But he said this. He just had a great way of saying things. And he said this. He said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I just, I love that. The Son of God became a man to enable sons of men to become sons of God. In other words, Joseph adopted Jesus into his family so that we could be adopted by God into his family. There's a full Christian doctrine about adoption. And I just love how this adds to it that Jesus himself was the adopted son of Joseph. I love that. But he, he didn't just, see, Joseph was skeptical. He was fearful. When, you know, if you're engaged to somebody and they come to you and, and they say, I'm pregnant, and you know it wasn't yours, and, and then, because you know you didn't do anything. <laughs> it's the only, best way, there's kids in the house, okay? 
So you, you know it wasn't yours. You're, you're going to be fearful, right? You're, what happened here? You're going to run, run away. You're going to want to stop all this. But God showed up to Joseph in this dream and, and began to talk to him. And he didn't just say, I want you to adopt this kid. He told him the mission of Jesus. We call it Missio Dei, the mission of God. He told him that, that it's not just a child here. It's not just, just this little boy. It's that he has a mission, and it's to save people from their sins. Back in verse 21, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you will give, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. See, he said, Joseph, this boy is special. He's got a mission. He's going to save people. I thought we'd zero in on that for a few minutes because it's really important how we define salvation. Because Jesus came for salvation. That's the whole purpose of his coming. It's telling us right in Matthew chapter 1. But so many times in the church, we've got this weird doctrine of salvation. Or I'm not, maybe not weird, incomplete. We have an incomplete doctrine of salvation. If we were to go around into the room and define salvation, we might say, going to heaven after you die. And that's not wrong, but it's like bringing a can of whipped cream to Christmas and telling everybody you brought pie. No, you didn't. You just brought the toppings to pie, right? Heaven is like the topping to the life lived with Jesus. Heaven is the topping of salvation. It's the topper. It's, it's, it's like, and there's even better things, you know, and you get to go to heaven. It's the topper. That's what heaven is. It's not all of salvation. It's part of salvation. But what about, you know, it's like, if that's all salvation is, is that you accept Jesus one point, and then at one point you die, and then you're, you're saved into heaven, what about all the rest of that time? What about all the time in between? Notice how it doesn't say that name him Jesus because he'll forgive people of his sins. God's been forgiven people for years. He said, I've been tired systems of forgiveness. And yes, on the cross, Jesus forgives. And, and he's the perfect sacrifice. And you don't need to make more sacrifices. And he forgives once and for all and all that stuff. Yes, he forgives. But God's been doing forgiveness for years, from the very beginning. He's been in that business for years. It says he came to save from our sins, which is an even bigger deal. And I love this. I want to dig into this. And if you really want to dig into something in the Bible, one of the best ways to do that is just to go back to the very first usage of a word. And one of the very first usages of this word sin is all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to give you a little backstory. We're going to have it on the screen. We're just going to share two verses out of this. But one, one of these days, I'll have to do a whole like couple, couple weeks on this verse. But Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. You all know the story probably. Cain and Abel. And I'll just recap it for you so that you, uh, you can remember it. God, um, there's these two kids, Cain and Abel. They're the sons of Adam and Eve. And uh, they both bring, they're brothers that bring sacrifices to the Lord. God had respect for Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's sacrifice. Abel kept flocks and sheep, and, and Cain farmed the ground. And so he was, you know, he worked grain and all that stuff. Now, it doesn't, it's not because Abel brought a sheep or something like that, and, and he didn't like grain as much, because there were grain offerings at the time. It's that we read in the scriptures that, um, <coughs> excuse me, Abel brought the first fruit, the firstborn of his flock. It actually cost him something to sacrifice to God. 
And so, therefore, God had more favor on Abel's sacrifice than he did on Cain's sacrifice. So what are our sins? What does God actually save us from this time here at Christmas? Genesis 4, 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? I love this. I, I like to read the rabbis because they've been looking at the Old Testament a lot closer than uh, Christian theologians. I, I love Christian theologians too, but I like to read the rabbis. And one of the rabbis uh, uh, who's current today, his name is Rabbi Foreman, and he, he says this. He goes, anger and depression make good bedfellows. Because that's what's happening here. Why is your face downcast? Why are you depressed? Why are you angry? They make good bedfellows, he says. He said, um, they often go together. Each is basically a passive emotional response. We don't normally think of anger as passive much, do we? If you think about it, anger is something that you cave into, right? It's something that begins to control you and has its way with you. It's something that if you do nothing about, then it controls your emotions. You don't control it. Now, I don't know if any of you have any experience with anger. It was a joke. You all have experience with anger. Okay. But you know this to be true if you've had experience with anger. We sometimes say, oh, the, oh yeah, our kids, they don't listen to us. They burst out in anger and they're whatever. They're, they're at stores running around. And we might say, oh, that's a strong-willed child. No, they're not. That's a weak-willed child because they can't control themselves, right? And we might say this of an adult. You, you have an adult that just bursts and loses it in anger and all that stuff, and, and, and somebody might go, oh, they're, just, they're a strong-willed person. That's just how they are. They're not strong-willed. You're weak-willed because you can't control the anger. You give into it. You give yourself over to it. And that's what was happening here with Abel. I'm sorry, with Cain. He was angry, and his face was downcast. And then the, the pivot, the change comes in Genesis 4-7. It says, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The sin is what Jesus saves us from. This is the same word that we find when it says that Yeshua will come, and he will save us from our sins. That's the same word. And so we're going back to the very first instance in the Bible. What's happening is that God sees Abel's anger. And in that anger, he says, you are prone to sin. So the advice he gives them is exceedingly simple. He says, do the right thing. Do the right thing. That's it. He doesn't say, go do you know, go read your Bible. He doesn't say, go over here and do this or go, go, you know, work for a little bit. He says, do the right thing. That's it. That's the advice give, that God gives this first person who's falling into this sin. He just simply says, do the right thing. But if you cave into anger, sin is crouching at your door. I love the word picture here. It's almost like there's a door and there's like a lion just ready to pounce on him. I love that picture that God gives right in the beginning in Genesis. That sin is just waiting to crouch at your, is crouching at your door, waiting to have you, waiting to take you over. So just do the right thing. Because this anger and depression that you're dealing with, if you just do nothing, that sin will master you. It doesn't say if you do evil. It's basically if you do nothing, that sin will master you. So simply do the right thing. I love that. It's so 
simple. It's so easy. Just do the right thing. How do we control anger? Do the right thing. How do you control sin? Do the right thing. See, when you give into sin, you are giving control over of yourself. This is what Jesus said he was going to come and save us from. He's going to show us how to live this life that we don't give in to anger and let, or give in to sin and let sin define our lives. In other words, Jesus will define our lives more than the sin or the anger or whatever. Talk to anyone who suffered from addiction. They talk about not being able to control themselves. And this goes for not just way more than drugs and alcohol. We all have somewhat of an addiction. Social media, maybe it's a little screen, taps, likes. Maybe it's uh, an Amazon addiction, Amazon Prime addiction. Um, maybe it's, it's uh, eating more than you should. Maybe it's, it's whatever. We all have these little addictions. And it's like crouching at our door, waiting to master us. And if we do nothing, it will master us won't it? But if we get up and do the right thing, then it won't. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression theologically. It doesn't mean that by works we're saved at all. It's by His work that we're saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves but the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's through His work on the cross that we are saved, not by our own work. But there does seem to be a backlash against the word works in church. And, and, you know, I don't know why, because your faith is supposed to be accompanied by good work. Every time you read in the Bible about judgment, about the judgment of God, it says you will be rise, rise to uh, life or rise to be condemned. But what is it judged by? The quality and character of our life. Have we done good things? Not just to do good things, but in the name of Jesus. Have we chosen wisely have we followed god because in that way as you choose jesus more and more and more your life begins to be defined by that and your character begins to be defined by that and you begin to be changed into the image of jesus that is salvation that your life is that, that jesus is in the center of your life and your life begins to look and, and sound like jesus that you become jesus to your wife or jesus to your husband that you look like Jesus in your life, that is salvation. That right here, right now on earth, that if you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, that what Jesus did on Christmas morning, the whole point of his coming is so that our character can be molded around his character. So that we wouldn't give in to that sin crouching at the door. So that we wouldn't give in to that, or not even just give in to it, but do nothing. So many times we go, yay, we're saved, and then we do nothing. You're in the worst spot of your life, if that's where you are. You're in a spot of false security, if that's where you're at today. Because God simply says to choose right. Way back in in the Cain and Abel, he says, if you do the right thing, will you not be accepted? I love that. Don't just do nothing with your salvation. The scriptures talk about working out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is a daily walk with God. A daily walk. Jesus, be in my business because I, I, I want to have great business, business, business ethics. I can't even say it. I want to have great business ethics that honor and respect you. Jesus, be in, in, in my interactions with 
family this Christmas because they voted for the wrong person and, and I might beat them up when I see them on Christmas, you know? By the way, I had a great joke about our Christmas vote on our board, and I, I wasn't going to say it, but now I am. And it might not be good. It might just be dumb. I'd say if we, if we had the wrong vote on that, then we were hacked by the Russians. That's all. Anyways. Um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I just gave in to the sin crouching at my door. I don't know. But my point is this. God told Joseph to do something incredible. God, told, God walked up to Joseph in, Joseph in his dream and, and basically said, you have to adopt this boy. That's what it means by give him the name. It doesn't mean just, just throw out a name out there, Bob, George, Sue, whatever. Just um, give, give him the name Jesus. It means take legal responsibility for this child because he's going to save the world of their sin. In other words, he is going to make it possible for you to have a character-changing experience when you begin to follow Jesus. That it will change the core of your character so that it, it won't just be that you just naturally do the right things, but that you'll want to do the right thing. Maybe you're in a place in your life where sin is crouching at your door. Whether it's lust or whether it's your your addiction to something or stuff or whatever, sin is crouching at your door. You've got that vice that's always there. Get up and do the right thing. Don't give into it. Because when you give into it, it controls you. I think that's the point of the story about the anger and the depression. Is because if he gave into it, if he just did nothing, then it will control him. And we know the, way, uh, the story, the way that Cain and Abel turned out gave into the anger, he gave into the depression, and he killed his brother. And God stood before him and said, your brother's blood cries from the ground because you, you couldn't control yourself. You gave into it. Salvation means that Jesus brings complete correction to the damage done by sin. So I want you to think of this in, in really in two doors because God said sin is crouching at your door. And he's talking to his people, and he said, I want you to think of this as two doors. Door one, we let Jesus in and ask him to renovate our house. And in that way, when sin is crouching at the other door, when sin is there, we, we say, God, we want, we want to do the right thing. And you don't just do nothing. You say, God, I want to do the right thing, and you do the right thing, whatever that is. Door two, you let Jesus in, and then you do nothing about it. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Slowly, Jesus will be in some closet or the drunk drawer that you don't ever use, and you open it up, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's Jesus. You know, he, Jesus will be put aside because you're not working out your faith in daily life. And all of a sudden, that sin that's crouching at the door, it won't just come and pounce on you, but you'll be, just, you'll be like a tamed cat. It'll just be, always be there. And it'll be easy to fall into and give into. I think anger really is the best example here. That's what scripture uses. It's because sometimes it's there and you see it boiling up. And if you just got up and moved or did something else, it might not boil up. I, and, I, and I think that's the point of Genesis 4. Do the right thing. Get up and move. Get out of there. But if you don't, if you just do nothing, 
then it will come and pounce and attack you. Jesus came not just for forgiveness, although he did that, but to completely renovate your house and your life. That's what the mission that the angel told Joseph. Name him Jesus, for he will save people of their sins. He will make it possible for them to live a brand new, transformed life. And friends, that's available to you today. Sin might be crouching at your door. Do the right thing. Sin might be ready to pounce and and, and take you down with it and let you go in that nice angry rant that makes you feel good for a minute but has all kinds of ramifications. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Let's pray. Father, today, sin is crouching at all of our doors. It'd be impossible to say it's not, but it is. And God, we need you to renovate our lives. We need you to change our fundamental character, God. God, we need you to save us from our sins. Because without you, without doing the right thing, we just give into it. So God, help us to do the right thing. Help us to make something of our lives. Help us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling before you so that every single day when we're faced with the decision of doing nothing or doing the right thing, we choose the right thing. If there's anybody right here who simply needs to give their lives over to Jesus, I just you could do that with a simple prayer. God, I just open the door to you in my life. I ask you to come into that. And help me to renovate my house so that I could choose the right thing because I'm constantly choosing the wrong thing. God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for this entirely new way of living. And help us to live that out in faithfulness. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.